Welcome to Jersey Justice, a civil law podcast that shares practical tips and stories about personal and workplace injuries. Join two of the brightest New Jersey injury attorneys, Gerald Clark and Mark Morris of Clark Law Firm, as they take you behind the scenes of justice and civil law. But first, a quick disclaimer. The information shared on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing on this site should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create and does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Jersey Justice Podcast. We are all back from the 4th of July, and some of us are tanned, some of us are well-rested, and some of us have been working on briefs and the law, like Jerry right over there. So you guys want to say hello and tell us how your weekend was. Hey, Dimple, great weekend. You said it. I've been saying I've got a shine to me, but I was in the sun. I was at the beach. Uh, yeah, it's always always a little rough getting in back adjusted to the work week, but we're hitting the ground running. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's good. We're at the, we're at the Jersey shore here in this part of the world. There's four seasons, you know, spring, summer, fall and winter. And the, the winters can be rough sometimes like in like December, January, February, but it makes, it makes the good weather days that much better. You know, I imagine if you're in a place where it was good weather every day, you know, you might not appreciate it as much, you know, but seeing the good of that. And it's good energy at the Jersey Shore this time of year. A lot of people around. So it's cool. It's awesome. And so today we're going to be talking about the reality of defense experts and the term hired gun, which you guys have heard. We're also going to be talking about expert testimony and the Daubert standard. And for you guys, you're like, well, what's the Daubert standard? What is a hired gun? We're going to break it down for you in this episode. And Mark's going to get this conversation started by telling us about, you know, what it really is the definition in terms of these experts who are hired primarily for their ability to favorably sway a jury rather than providing objective opinions. Like, get us started on this conversation of how these things go down. Well, Dimple, I'll tell you, there's days sometimes I wake up where I say, what the heck is the Daubert standard? And I think there's a reason there's a bunch of court decisions about that very issue, because I think a lot of attorneys wake up and say, what the heck is the Daubert standard? Um, I'm going to start with that one. I'm not sure if you you wanted me to, but that's what I'm going to get out of the way. We've talked a lot in these episodes about experts, expert witnesses, and Jerry and I, most of the lawyers at our firm, we practice predominantly in New Jersey state court, uh, but we also have done plenty of cases in federal court as well. And there's different sets of rules between state court and federal court. And sometimes there's a lot of overlap, like the rules of evidence often are very similar, but one of the areas where they diverge are when it comes to experts. So in New Jersey state court, we've talked about, you know, essentially if it's something that's beyond the intellect of an average juror, you know, explaining how a machine works, explaining what the building code says about, you know, sidewalk differentials, things like that. Typically you'd want an expert and the expert can be qualified as an expert through training or through education, you know, without putting it into practice, any number, it's, it's a very kind of flexible, loose standard for the most part in New Jersey. But when it comes to uh, federal court, it's much, much more strict. Uh, you have to have a scientifically, you know, reliable, I guess, theory. It has to be evidentiary reliable. Like it, it's, 
I'm like bumping through it, but it really is. It has to be a scientific, you have to have scientific knowledge. So again, something that's beyond an average juror's grasp, you have to have scientific knowledge and it has to be evidentiary reliable, which what the heck does that mean? The court's given factors, what that means it has to be a theory that can be tested. Uh, it has been subject to peer review. There has to be, you know, a known or expected rate of error. Um, and then whether it's something that's generally accepted and you know deployed in, in the field. So what this is kind of designed to do is it's the court's gatekeeping function to make sure that the person that's gonna be coming in and testifying is qualified to do so. And that what they're gonna be coming in and talking about is something that's accepted in his or her given field. Uh, in New Jersey state court, you don't need to get typically to that level of specificity, um, but with federal, you, you do. Um, so it's it, oftentimes cases will kind of, you know, rise or fall on whether or not the expert is qualified to testify. And for a lot of experts, if they get nixed on on, Daub, on Daubert, it's a big issue for them that they, they take that very personally because then it's it's tough for them to keep getting cases sometimes. I'll try to explain Daubert as, uh, in the most simplest way I can. So do cell phones cause cancer? If you file a lawsuit in federal court because you think you got cancer from your cell phone, the case is going to be thrown out of court unless there is a scientific study that links the particular cancer you have to that level of radiation in the cell phone. So before Daubert, <clears throat> you could file a, for example, a, a cell phone cancer lawsuit against a cell phone company. You had an expert that says, in my opinion, that cell phone caused the cancer. And here's why. Unless that expert has, unless there's underlying studies in the scientific journals that support that, you can't bring the case. So, for example, in the litigation about Roundup, um, I think it's glucophosphate, I think, is the ingredients that the plaintiffs were alleging caused cancer. Um, it got thrown out of court on Daubert standards, I believe. But then studies came out that, in fact, linked the certain type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma to glucophosphate, and that brought the case back. So what's that mean in the real world? What that means in the real world is... So this weekend, you asked what I did, Dimple. In addition, I did go to the beach a little bit. And in addition to writing a brief about workers' rights in the state of New Jersey, I also listened to um, Kennedy's town hall, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s town hall on News Nation, And I also listened to his complete podcast on Joe Rogan. Super interesting. I think Bobby Kennedy uh, Jr. is a great guy. Um, and he talked about Daubert and he talked about this as it relates to vaccines. And basically what Daubert means is you can have in the real world, you can have all kinds of products out there because he was talking a lot about the correlation between autism and vaccines and COVID vaccine and whether or not the vaccines, you know, he talks about um, the financial incentive that the big pharma has to get these vaccines approved and mandatory vaccines so that, you know, and, and all the money that's made against them or made made with those vaccines. And Bobby Kennedy Jr. has done a lot. He's a lawyer and he did a lot of advocacy rights litigation for people um, that have had injuries from products like that. And what he's saying in the real world is because of this, you can have all kinds of vaccines out there and you can have all kinds of products and drugs and chemicals 
that are just in the environment and in the society and that are causing really bad injuries. But unless the scientists have gotten around to writing an actual article linking that product to your particular ailment, you, you can't bring it. We did, a, we did a previous episode about defense medical exams and whether you can have a nurse there. And okay, the default is you can have a nurse. Um, you have to file a motion and jump through a bunch of hoops to get, to get a nurse at your exam. Or no, the default's gonna be you can have a nurse there and the defense has to jump through hoops to prevent you from getting a nurse at the exam to watch your exam to protect your interest. And it's the same thing here. Like the default is you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to prove that these things out in society, these products or these chemicals are causing a really bad injury. The default is you can't bring the case. And unless you have scientific evidence and uh, by studies, peer reviewed studies and experiments that prove it, which are super expensive. And then you could go down, we can go down on a rabbit hole on this issue, but then, you know, there's also a lot of people that, that believe and talk about how the various industry groups will fund studies that will come to conclusions that these chemicals are harmless. Um, that kind of um, raises a whole nother issue. But anyone interested in this Daubert, um, this is an awesome podcast. Maybe one day we'll have Robert Kennedy Jr. on here. But until then, I would recommend like his Joe Rogan is really, really good on this issue. So, yeah, it, it seems like Daubert comes up most often in, in federal cases, at least in our experience, when it comes to liability experts, causation experts like Jerry was talking about with, with Roundup. For the most part, you're not going to necessarily have a Daubert issue if you have an orthopedic surgeon saying that car crashes can cause herniations or something along those lines. It's, it's rare that a damages expert, I think, in that context would be necessarily nixed on Daubert. They still would have to go through and, you know, review all the information that they're supposed to review and tie their theory to, you know, medical knowledge and accepted standards in the field. But I'm pretty sure there'd be plenty of published studies that, you know, trauma can cause herniated discs. You, you see, you see Dimple, what I learned is um, in, in my schooling throughout the years and reading and stuff is when the people got together and decided to form this country, it was basically formed on like money talks and BS walks. Um, so, for example, we talk in America about, oh, the right to vote, you know, the right to vote. Well, the right to vote in America, as the framers had it in the beginning, was just landowning males had the right to vote. And. And it was all about those, the aristocrats and those with money kind of, and that's kind of borne out in litigation. Like you say, oh, are you going to sue them? Or are you not going to sue them and stuff? Well, I don't know. They'll, you know, they got more money than we do and they're going to bury us in paper. And that's exactly what happens. So all these things we talk about on these podcasts, a lot of it boils down to litigation, resources, well-funded insurance companies and corporations. Um, you know, whether lobbying Congress or lobbying the courts or burying plaintiffs in paper, they, they can win that way. And Daubert is one of their favorite things for that. I mean, to get over Daubert in a lot of instances, it's literally being buried in paper. It's you don't have a scientific study to prove it. And then they'll have experts, you know, in a lot of these cases from Harvard, Yale and Stanford against you, depending on your case. So a lot of this, it's like being buried paper. It's just like a lot of hoops that are put out there. Now, Daubert's a good thing. And the gatekeeping role is a good thing to prevent like frivolous cases or, you know, 
I think this paper caused me cancer and I'm going to find some quack expert that says, yes, writing on this paper caused cancer. Yeah, that case should not be brought and that case should be get thrown out of court, you know, and, and I guess Dabbert's a good thing for that. But what happens is it can go overboard and and be used as a sword instead of a shield and it can be used to get rid of otherwise good cases. Yeah, thanks. And and I guess, you know, what are I guess what are some factors in determining the re- reliability of expert testimony? What are some of those factors? Yeah. So so with Dalbert, I think we touched on some of them um Dimple. It, it Jerry kind of hit it too. I mean, the big thing is basically if it's a theory that's been peer reviewed and when I think what we mean when we talk about peer reviewed are like peer reviewed studies. Um, like something in the scientific, medical, engineering, whatever it may be, community that's been subject to rigorous peer-reviewed analysis. It's been published somewhere and, and things like that. Like Jerry saying, I can't say, hey, I have this sheet of paper here. I touched it. It caused me cancer. There would need to be scientific studies reviewed by, uh, I guess, other oncologists, other people who would talk about the link between touching paper and getting cancer. Uh, I, I think the idea is to establish like a reliable benchmark for the testimony that's coming in. But like Jerry, he's saying, I mean, you, you follow the money. Who's getting the big, you know, peer reviewed studies funded and all that? It's these big companies. And it, it's a shame to think that the world works like that. And it's a balance between being cynical and, and being naive. But it's it's Mark, I, just, Mark, I can't. I can attest, though, that all the paper I see every day does cause it, me anxiety. I yeah. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. Just think about I don't know about cancer, but definitely anxiety. Yeah. I mean, this is this is probably pre. I don't know if it's the paper or what's written on the paper. Usually it's probably what's written on the paper or maybe it's both because, you know, like. Or the idea of the paper, not even the paper itself, the concept of paper. Do you guys have nightmares about paper at night? Has have any of you had like a nightmare about you know, paper or case files are, are like losing them. Like they fall out of a a car and they blow away everywhere. No, but I did have an experience in high school when I got called into the principal's office, my friend and I, and the guy that we had, it was like a retired police officer. And he's like, you boys know why you're in here. Right. And we were like, no, we don't. My friend's also a lawyer. He's like, we've got you on camera littering. We're like, what? He's like, throwing papers out the window, flying over. And it was absolutely not. It was just windy outside and their papers blowing around. So I don't have nightmares about getting buried in paper at work, but I do have nightmares about Rocky, the security guard, threatening my friend Will and I with uh, detention for littering when we didn't litter. On, on something of a serious note on that dimple, like with staying up at night and being a lawyer, it's being a lawyer, like you have people's economic lives in your hands often. And a lot of times we are the only thing between total destitution for a lot of our clients or some of our clients. So that can, that can cause anxiety for sure. I think it's similar to a doctor, you know, a law degree is a JD, which stands for Juris Doctor and, you know, MD is medical doctor. Um, but there's a lot of similarities because what we do, it's kind of like a practice. And I tell this to young lawyers, like the paper is so important and organizing the paper is so important. It's a practice and everything has to be in order. And I analogize it to like, you know, that paper came in and you didn't take action on it or you didn't do this or the deadline or you didn't meet it. And it's like, we're like a doctor's office. Could you imagine if someone's test results came in and, oh, sorry, we missed your your diagnosis and sorry, you know, too late to treat it. They have to take 
what we do at the same level um, because people's economic lives depend upon it, feeding their families. And we also have an ethical obligation and a professional responsibility to do it. So on a serious note, the answer is yes. Any good lawyer will tell you that they've lost sleep at night thinking about cases or, oh shoot, did I make that deadline? Or did I file that document? Or what is that paper that came in? I mean, there's less paper today. It's emails and electronic messages and everything, but it's still the same thing. So yeah, it can definitely yeah. cause it can cause anxiety and keep you up at night sometimes. Yeah, I'll go serious with it too. It's it's not the paper itself. It's <laughs> you know what file the papers go to and everything like that. It's like we really do what we do. It, Jerry does always say it's like being doctors. We're you know we're not out doing surgery, but what we're doing is designed to try and help people who have a problem. And oftentimes their problem is that they got catastrophically injured. And it's at least I feel like each day is like a start to finish just nonstop of solving problems, be it like, oh, we have to get this thing out. Like, let's get that handled. Oh, wait, this this thing just got scheduled and it conflicts with that thing. Like, let's solve that problem so we can keep this case going and not have that delay too long. And this client called because it's been, you know, years since their injury and COVID happened and court shut down. And, you know, how do we address that? And it's just like if you let it kind of consume you, it, it can kind of affect like how you'd be able to do everything. So it's such a balance between caring and like working hard, but also just, you know, trying to kind of stay objective. What we do is we produce a product and it's a service, but it's a product too. And the product is what we submit to court. And we always try to make our stuff top quality, like do a good job on stuff. We don't like to do it in a half way. So we take less cases too. Like, like we had said, in another podcast, we only take a small percentage of all the cases that come to us every year. Um, and we'd like to think that those are just the good cases and we'd like to do a good job. We take less cases, but do a good job on, on each one. So like, for example, this weekend, you asked about the 4th of July and I was saying I had spent a lot of time writing a brief. So the defendant filed a motion and I think their brief was like two and a half pages, if that, or maybe a page and a half or two pages, but it, it was, it's an issue that's really important to us. Um, you know, and there's a real social justice aspect to this issue that I was working on. And I spent a lot of the weekend and one of the other attorneys in our office spent a lot of time on it. And we're going to be submitting like a 45 page brief in response to their one and a half page brief, um, because we really care about this issue and the issue is important. So that's another part of it too. Like, you know, yes, we have deadlines and stuff, but and that causes anxiety and, and pressure. But on top of that, we also want to do a good job. We don't want to just mail it in. We want it. We want to do a top job. So that can add a, another level of um, pressure and everything. But at the end of the day, I think I feel good about what we do because we're helping people and we're, you know, we can't change the world necessarily, um, but we can change what's in front of us and the experience of people. And we have had an impact on New Jersey law, which does change it for a lot of people as well, because we've been involved in several published opinions, including a Supreme Court opinion. So, so yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Mark, any thoughts on that before we move on? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm with Jerry, obviously. It takes more time to do things right, but it's a better quality product. It, it, in my opinion, it's better for our clients, better for our reputations. And just organically, by kind of having worked harder, put more work into into the cases, we, at least my opinion is that it tends to get better results than we would if we were just submitting, you know, one and a half page documents on important issues instead of these <laughs> heavy duty things. Like you, you can still lose. You get a two paragraph summary judgment 
motion, you could still lose with a 40 page opposition. Um, but I put my head down at night, happy having done that rather than just phoned it in so I can run off to the next thing. That, that's just kind of top down thing, I think, throughout here. So thanks, Mark. I mean, obviously, there's no guarantees, right? But at the end of the day, if you know that you've, you know, done the best that you've done that you can do, and you go to bed, at, you know, you go to bed at night feeling good about the situation, I think that's all that matters, because there's a lot of lawyers and law firms out there, right? But how they all operate is all different. And when you operate on integrity, and you're, you know, going out of your way to do the best you can for that case and for the client, I think that's all that anyone can expect. So thank you for sharing that. So Dimple, kind of a little bit getting back on track with the with the expert issue. We, you know, we're just talking about how we like to put in the kind of extra work on the case, go that extra mile. Um, we've talked a lot, I feel like, in some past episodes about digging up dirt on defense experts, at least in why I said digging up dirt. I mean, trying to find if there's prior testimony, try and glean some information about the guy who's going to be testifying. Because, again, it's he's going to show up in a suit or lab coat or whatever it may be. The jury's only exposure to him is going to be that 45 minutes to hour and a half of testimony, and they're going to likely be very impressed or else the defense wouldn't continue to hire him and pay him hundreds of him or her hundreds of thousand dollars each year. So we try and kind of go armed with as much you know bullets in our clip as we can to kind of knock down that facade that's got built up. So if I share my screen real, real quick, Jerry and I had a case up in, can you see what I have up there? Yeah, we can see your screen. Thanks, Mark. Sure. All right. So Jerry and I had a case. We started out talking about federal court. We actually had a case up in New York federal court that dealt with um, dealt with a, a woman who was injured at a gym. She's doing a workout. It was a new workout. She'd never done it before. She wasn't. She was just getting back into fitness. I think she was in her mid to late fifties, and she hired a personal trainer for the you know specific purpose of watching her, spotting her do exercises because she wasn't familiar with the gym. She hadn't been there and worked out a lot. And she was doing a new exercise. She's down on one knee, raising a weight up over her shoulder. And the the trainer saw one of his buddies or someone come in and, and walked away to go talk to him. And so she's doing this new exercise. And I think it was, I forget how many reps into it. She she tore up her shoulder. Went home like right away, had all these issues, all these all these problems. And our orthopedic doctor, you know, saw her, reviewed films, did all this stuff. And the defense sent her to a doctor and the doctor reaches this conclusion, you know, like, oh, her her injuries weren't caused by weightlifting. Uh, you know, there's no way it could have been caused by weightlifting. It's it's pre-existing, it's degenerative. And she had this like catastrophic shoulder tear. I think it was a like a, a slap tear. She had to have major surgery. And the defense doctor's like, no, that's just the normal part of aging. So in order to kind of attack that that conclusion, we dug up some kind of background on him. And this guy, I guess, comparatively was, was not as bad as, as some of the others, but still, as we'll go through, I'll run through this with you. We put together essentially um, some bullet points for cross-examination because that's one of the strongest tools that we have to expose this, the doctor and things. So we found out, you know, about five to 10% of his practice is these DMEs, which is relatively low. Some of these guys there, that's all they do now. A lot of them don't do surgeries. They don't see patients. All they do is, is defense medical exams. This particular doctor, 90% of his independent, and I'm giving air quotes and I quoted there, independent medical exams were for the defendants. And a lot of times the, the 10% they'll do for plaintiffs is, you know, maybe they have a friend who's a plaintiff's attorney. This isn't always, but someone they know that they'll help out on a case. 
or they'll just try and balance the scales a little bit so they can say, oh, no, I'm not 100% for the defense. I saw these two plaintiffs on on this day. But this guy was doing around three to 400 uh, DMEs a year back in, I think it was the early 2000s. He was making $100,000 a year. As we got 2004, five, six, about 130,000 each year doing 90% DMEs. And he would get 1099 forms. Um, so anytime that he did work for for a defense law firm, they'd, they'd send him a 1099. And he'd get so many of them that he would literally just throw them in garbage bags in his basement. He didn't know what to do with them, didn't want to shred them, throw them out. So this guy had garbage bags upon garbage bags of just 1099s. His secretary didn't know what to do. And he charged $1,000 an hour to come in and testify, which is a lot of money, even for these for these experts who typically get to charge a lot of money. And the court, because we've talked about, that's a factor that jurors can consider, the amount of money an expert's getting paid. And so in the past, a court must have comment, commented and said that that's an unreasonable amount of money. Sometimes, too, if you depose an expert, you pay the costs to have that expert. So this guy, it looks like, tried to charge $1,000 an hour for, for his deposition to be taken. And the, the kicker in all this, like I think he said, you know, back in 2014, he was testifying two to four times a year. Um, and then it turned out he was really doing seven to ten. And then it turned out that there were days where he testified twice in the same courthouse. So he'd testify in one courtroom and then just walk down the hall and go testify in the other. So going back to the beginning with this specific guy, his big thing was that, oh, you can't injure your shoulder from doing this exercise. It's it's pre-existing. It's degenerative. You would never get a traumatic injury like that from working out. And what I did was uh, I Googled the guy. I forget how I did it, but I, I Googled him and I found this law firm that had, had a case against um, where this doctor was one of the experts. I think they were out of Connecticut. And I had, I was like, Hey guys, I'm a plaintiff's attorney too. Like, here's the link to our website. Just so you know, I'm not a defense guy in hiding. Um, and I, I said, I've got a case against this guy. Do you have any materials you could share? And they sent me over like deposition transcripts, a bunch of things that they had. And I kind of took it a step further and I went and I started researching the guys, uh, the doctor's actual medical practice page and all throughout his page, he has these medical illustrations. So I, I put a note for this cross-examination that, there's lists of medical illustrations and animations relevant to our case. One was rotator cuff injuries, and he, he called it a sudden tear in the rotator cuff. And he said it can be caused by dot, 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 lifting a heavy weight incorrectly, which was exactly what we had here that he was saying, oh, there's no way that can happen. So he said, well, doctor, on your website, you have an illustration of a rotator cuff injury. He's like, yes, that's correct. And doctor, under that illustration, you say that a tear in the rotator cuff can be caused by lifting a heavy weight incorrectly. And he's like, oh, well, I, uh, I don't know who wrote that. I, I don't blah, blah, blah. I was like, do you disagree with that? And he's like, ah, if it's on the website, it must be true. And it, it kind of undermined his entire opinion. And so again, this was an overhead motion like that, rotator cuff injury, slap tear, bicep tendon tear. And each one of these on the website, he had medical illustrations saying, you know, rotator cuff tear can happen if you try to lift something heavy with a jerking motion. Slap tear can be caused by trauma to the shoulder, can be caused by forceful overhead motion. Weightlifters can be injured this way. Uh, bicep tendon tear. You can tear a tendon if you try to lift something heavy. Bursitis of the shoulder can happen if you do a lot of repeated arm motions, especially with your arm raised, which was exactly what we had in this case. Um, so when we kind of confronted him with all this, his defense, at least in our opinion, really fell apart. And I felt like we were in a strong, strong spot with damages. And a couple other kickers down here, he never reviewed the actual MRI films. Any expert kind of worth 
their salt will tell you that the MRI films are a hugely important piece of the puzzle. They're, they're kind of the gold standard for getting in there and seeing what the actual damage is to things like tendons, ligaments, you know, disc space, the spine. And in this case too, he only spent two minutes with the patient. So to do a physical examination, to take a medical history, to go through all of her records, this was two minutes. And the only reason we knew that was because we sent a nurse consultant in there to sit and watch the examination. Essentially, this guy wrote this impressive report, comes in, looks great, testifies on direct, you know, probably is about to get off the stand. The jury thinks very highly of everything you've said. Then we like to think pointing out all these things really kind of just poke holes in, in what they did, because it's it's rare that we have the benefit of just kind of getting to sit back and poke holes. Usually it's the defense that gets to do that to our case. It's our burden of proof. So to get to sit back and, you know, have this defense doctor give this big presentation and then pick apart all the kind of inconsistencies, all the reasons that he's either biased or motivated by financial gain to say the things he's saying, it can be kind of gratifying, especially when you go out and do the preparation and um, find the nuggets that we had in this case. Wow. That is, that is something else. Any thoughts, Jerry? Just doing that takes so much time. Like it's like what we do. Every, everything takes like so much time. It's like a lot of work. I wanted to, I wanted to do a podcast about, cause some kids have been asking me, you know, Hey, do one. Cause you know, I have kids, um, kind of in that college age and stuff trying to figure out like, Hey, what am I going to do for the future? So I was thinking we should do a podcast about, should I go to law school or not? Or should I become a lawyer or a personal injury lawyer? Um, if we do one, that's one thing I want to talk about is how much time everything takes. You yeah. could have, you could have an auto crash that occurs over the course of five seconds or 10 seconds or fall down or something. And the amount of work that will go into recreating and analyzing those five or 10 seconds in time, it's unbelievable. It's daunting. So for Mark to do all that digging on that expert and get that effective research, which results in effective, effective cross-examination, it takes a lot of time. Um, and then it yeah. takes time to frame the questions and, and to ask them and to think on your feet. And you think the doctor's going to answer the question one way and he answers another. And, oh, shoot, my script is now no good because it went some other direction. All that stuff takes so much time and skill. Remember that case. Mark did an awesome job on that. Yeah. Awesome. And I think, you know, it's almost like you have to have a plan B and a plan A, right? Then that doesn't go through plan B, plan C, all that takes a lot of time, but I think it's good for our audience and our listeners to actually see, you know, behind the scenes, like what it's like to practice law, what it's like to actually, you know, handle these injury cases, because sometimes I think, you know, clients may not realize what goes on behind the scenes because in reality, it looks simple, but in reality, it's not simple, right? It's, it's yeah. a very complicated thing and it can get more complicated as, you know, these things come up, like what Mark just showed us with um, what he had to deal with. So thanks for doing that. We can absolutely do an episode. Maybe, maybe you can bring your son on and he can be on the show as well. I think that's a great topic. Yeah. Yeah. Dimple, I'll just, before we move, move on from that and Jerry, thanks, but it's, it's totally true. So that little like one page memo I just showed you guys that came after reading, you know, however many cases are in here to see how many times he testified for the defense, what he said in each one. And then it also came after looking at all of these different things, like his earnings, affidavits, you know, going 
that's that's hours upon hours of work probably too in the heat of trial uh, if we hadn't done it well beforehand because that's just the realities of how law practice goes so this is probably too like you know I actually remember it. It was probably like a 1 a.m. thing pulling this together so that the next day we could cross-examine the doctor in, in an effective way. But yeah, so that even little one-page memo with, you know, 20 bullet points or whatever is after hours and hours of just, you know, spilling through different resources and things like that. Yeah. I mean, there's times when you guys have literally worked all night and then, you know, had to go in, you know, go into court and, and so forth because sometimes that's that's what it takes. And and there are times when you guys have actually had to do your own almost like investigative process, you know, to get the information to support the case. And and I think that's what makes, you know, a lawyer a good lawyer is when you can go above and beyond to really do what it takes, because it, it's not easy sometimes gathering, you know, evidence that people don't want to put out there per se. Yeah, that's my that's my only all nighter. None in high school, college, law school. My only all nighter was that. You must have been a really good kid, you know, because I remember I used to study right before the exam, so it'd be fresh in my brain, and then just sleep an hour or two and go take the test. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do the all-nighters. We tried that case in federal court in New York, um, in the Southern District of New York, which is Lower Manhattan, and we were right near Chinatown. And I remember it was right before COVID. I think it was in like February or something. It was. Yeah. And I remember I saw these Asian, a lot of people... Asian people walking around wearing masks. And I'm like, what the heck is that? Why are these people wearing masks? But I suppose in Chinatown, they had a lot of relatives in China and they knew what was coming here before we all did. And lo and behold, a month later, every American's wearing a mask. Yeah. I remember we were like joking about it. We're like, oh, what the, like the Wuhan flu? What is this? Like, what's going And then fast yeah. forward, to like two, three weeks later, it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'll give you a little anecdote about that too. We got a hotel because we um, because we were trying the case up there. So rather than go back and forth, we're probably about like an hour, hour and a half drive from New York City. But just the traffic, the headaches of it and stuff. And um, so Jerry was the floor above me, and I was I was below one of the other paralegals and I. And so we would be working on whatever it was that we're supposed to work on. And Jerry, he's so, he's just attention to detail. He really, really goes above and beyond. Like I like to think I work hard and go above and beyond, but Jerry's got, he's got this extra gear to him and it'd be like 1130 midnight. We'd be like, all right, right, right for bed. And then we'd hear upstairs, Jerry, Jerry's step in, coming down. Sure enough, you'd be like, hold on, hold on. I think you got to do this memo, submit it. <laughs> we'd be like, ah. <laughs> That's but, a Jerry. That, that's that's a Jerry we know, you know. And he's like, "Wait, I thought of one more thing. Hold on, but, and we're going to talk about it right now." <laughs> but who? But who? That like, who else do you want? Like, you want the guy that's like, "No, like, hold on, we're not leaving any stone unturned. Like, we're you know taking this extra step." Like, yeah, you know, I probably at that time was still in like my late twenties or something, and I'm like, "Oh, like, whatever." But I, you know. It, we work hard for the clients. And it's just... Oh, you're not still in your late twenties, Mark. Come on. <laughs> you see this? You see the shine? Well, you can't see the back of my head on the podcast. So, I'm now I'm in my mid thirties now. But yeah, so it, it, it was funny. It, it was a great experience. We would like walk through this park where it was. It was in Chinatown, and there'd be like old men playing ping pong at like six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. People doing tai chi or yoga. It, it was like a wild experience. Um, and then fast forward to like two, three weeks later and it was like COVID hit. And that was the last time I saw a courtroom for probably like almost two years. 
before I was back in the courthouse again. So Mark, thanks for sharing, you know, thanks for sharing that, um, you know, that example of what it really takes behind the scenes of how you went through all this intensive work and process to, to really, you know, prove a point, right? Yeah. So, so I guess you guys, it's a wrap again, submit your questions. Um, if you would like to have your question appear on our show and we answer it live, submit your questions to questions at jerseyjusticepodcast.com. We'll be in the show notes. Make sure you subscribe, share this out to your friends and stay safe out there, New Jersey. And there you have it, folks. Another episode of Jersey Justice Podcast. If you're loving what you're hearing, it's time to hit that subscribe button on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review online. Share this podcast with your friends and become their legal hero. Dive into more episodes at jerseyjusticepodcast.com or clarklawnj.com and check out our show notes for more information. If you're navigating legal issues and need a guiding light, we're just a phone call away. Call us at 1-877-841-8855. Again, 1-877-841-8855. Until next time, Jersey Justice Warriors, stay empowered and informed.